I think what you realize needs to be innovated is even simpler than, you know, than the things you imagine would be like the groundbreaking changes. So AI is great and AI is helpful, but AI, I would say, would probably make the biggest impact not in the coming decade. I am uh, very happy today to have Itai Benzakin. He is the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb. Welcome, Itai. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, great. Maybe you could share with the group to start uh, what your background is and how that led you to where you are with Honeycomb today. I mean, I started my career um, as an intelligence officer, actually, in the Israeli military, where I learned a lot of thing, interesting things and had really exciting experiences, which I cannot talk about. Um, then I went to study computer engineering. So I uh, started my career as a, as a software engineer, uh, worked for a few years at Intel um, as a software engineer and team leader. So I, I do come from the deep technical background. But then I moved to the U.S., uh, did my MBA at Wharton and moved to the business side starting from 2008. Um, worked for a couple of years for the Boston Consulting Group. And then I joined um, a company called Queen Street in Silicon Valley, where I uh, I led that business unit responsible for their online insurance operations and I grew it quite substantially so I was oh I was basically heading that business unit uh, I was not really involved in the engineering work um, so I did that for four years and that's kind of where I got introduced to the insurance world then I started my first company a uh, digital marketing company that used big data and artificial intelligence for optimizing um, campaigns on social media, which funny to think about this, but in 2013, social media advertising was kind of a new thing. And it feels like we're, we've always been there. Um, so I did that. Um, I brought the company uh, to be cash flow positive, uh, but then felt like, you know, the whole advertising technology industry was not growing. It was actually kind of stagnant and, and you know, it felt like a duopoly of Google and Facebook that was just getting stronger and stronger. And that's where I decided I wanted to move to build something different. And, and insurance made so much sense to me because that was my background. And a lot of the transformation in the insurance world has been coming from these types of mass amounts of data plus enabling technologies into something bigger and more sophisticated that the incumbents were just starting to figure out. And I think it's going to take them a couple of decades to figure out. And, and that's where insurtechs were really starting to make a difference. Yeah. Great. Well, that's really interesting. So, so, so maybe let's sort of shift over to Honeycomb a bit, and maybe you could tell us specifically where Honeycomb fits into the insurance and insure tech landscape. Sure. So, Honeycomb is um, an innovator and and the first player to enable uh, real time rate quote mind for commercial real estate. Um, we are focusing right now on multifamily real estate, which is commercial lines insurance. We're covering the buildings themselves, the master policies. Um, and that's a market that we surprisingly discovered that is stuck 30, 40 years in the past. Uh, I'm saying surprisingly because it's not, you know, in terms of size of policies, these are not huge policies. Um, at the same time, it's commercial lines where things are do move more slowly and do usually require more manual work and, and supervision. But it's also a very fragmented market where, you know, you have a ton of incumbents 
each of them with much bigger fish to fry. And none of them really decided to say, I'm going to be the best in this market. I'm going to build the best solution because they just had bigger priorities. So in, ultimately, it, it sounds like you know, you're leveraging data and, and technology to underwrite as well or better than incumbents historically have using more manual processes. But essentially, you're getting traction because you've got a much better user experience, both for kind of direct-to-consumer and through brokers. Is that sort of how you would describe it in a nutshell? Exactly. But these two cannot live separately. Um, if I came to market and I said, you know, I'm just going to give everybody an online rate code bind experience and really great prices, but I don't have that really heavy underwriting machine in the back, I'm going to be losing money <laughs> very quickly. Um, so to do that and to do that correctly and to stay in business and to be able to grow business while maintaining very good loss ratios, we have to have them both. Because, I mean, providing a digital experience, that's simple. We had that in Agilius. It, it, it works. But then we had to work with the existing markets, and they were like, oh, we don't do small buildings. Oh, we don't do buildings on the right side of the tracks. We don't do buildings outside of city centers. We don't do buildings with pools. We don't do buildings with, you know, property coverage or liability coverage or DNO. It was it was a nightmare. And that's what we've, we've also heard from other brokers. And that's exactly what attracts, uh, attracts those brokers to us these days because we're really easy to work with. And it saves them time. That's the other thing about this market because it's small commercial. I mean, if you're a commercial broker and you're selling $100,000 policies, usually you're not that sensitive to whether you spend a day or two days on closing a deal. But when you're selling $3,000 or $4,000 policies, if you have to spend more than an hour on a risk, you're losing money, right? right. And, and that's one of the big things that we are seeing in our platform is that it takes away all that hassle for them. They, they can spend minutes on, on getting it, customizing it, sending it out the door, and, and it makes that type of product attractive for them, whereas before we've heard from brokers, they're like, well, I don't want to deal with this policy. It's $5,000. I'd rather go sell a few $50,000 policies for the same time and I have to sell less to make the same amount. That's great. And... Um, given the fact that uh, you had good exposure to uh, InsureTech 1.0, as you described it, you know, how do you see, either from a perspective of building a business or just overall industry trends, you know, how do you see the current environment and, and maybe even, you know, where do you see it going in the future here as, as things evolve and, you know, that sort of 20-year period of innovation you mentioned going forward? Um, uh, you, you know, sort of rolls on into the future. Yeah. So it's funny when you think about innovation and insurance, I think what you realize needs to be innovated is even simpler than, you know, than the things you imagine would be like the groundbreaking changes. So AI is great and AI is helpful, but AI, I would say, would probably make the biggest impact not in the coming decade or not in the coming five years, but five or 10 years from now. I think some of the things that have been really broken um, and, and have been starting to evolve in the past three to four years are just the connectivity of data. Um, there's a ton of great third-party data out there, but a lot of the incumbents, they just don't get to it. I mean, you have companies that have 20 different vendors selling systems technology to them. 
they don't talk with each other. You want to integrate a data source that exists out there, but you know it's it's such a huge hassle. So that's the first thing that has to be fixed. That you know the data infrastructure would enable the insurance providers to really make the the, the full take the full leverage of the existing data. And there's enough data out there. I mean, the data is out there for for a decade or two. It's digitized. There's a ton of resources from the government. There's a ton of resources from from private companies. Just by connecting the dots, there's a huge leap that can be done. And that's what some of the early uh, um, insurtechs, not 1.0, 2.0 MGAs that that went out. I think a lot of the leverage of what they've covered is there. Now, beyond that, as we get into more complex lines, I mean, and it's not by chance that the lines that were uh, initially disrupted were the small, uh, the simple, the the high volume um, uh, uh, markets like auto insurance or home insurance, uh, because it's just less complex. But now, when you're when these have been covered, and when the technology and the data availability continue to be more more and more powerful, then you can start looking at more complex lines like ours that does require more than what you do. When you insure, you know, when you sell a renter's insurance for two hundred dollars, you don't need the type of sophistication that we need when we sell a policy that is like orders of magnitude larger. But now you can do it, and then I think it's going to go deeper and deeper into those additional lines that are more specific, um, that have specific characteristics. But the the qu- the quickness and the ability to adopt technology and to leverage those technologies and data uh, data sets will become easier. And, and quicker, it, you know, if it wouldn't take you a year to integrate a few data sets and, and improve the engine. Um, and then, you know, some of those companies out there who are basically developing just underwriting engines are doing a lot of that. And, and I think they're going to be contributing a lot to the evolution of the industry. So I think, you know, next decade or next five years to the next decade is going to be a lot about using, making use of, of the data that's out there into a full digital experience. And then for those more complex lines, we're going to see deeper technologies like AI, uh, like computer vision, like drones potentially, um, starting to make more influence and and have uh, a deeper participation in the underwriting itself. One thing, sorry, I'm sort of bouncing back and forth from uh, broad, broad industry strokes to specifics around honeycomb. Um, but one thing I meant to ask before is, so, so you kind of have a, a dual channel strategy where, where you've got the direct uh, available online and then you're also supporting brokers. So um, you don't always see that, you know, oftentimes people, particularly at the sort of early stage that you're at, focus in one channel or another. And so what's it like kind of balancing that are there any is there any channel conflict there that you're you're dealing with or how, how are you handling that at such an early stage yeah and this is something we thought about a lot um i think the reason we really wanted to go on the channel from the get-go um is because we want to be very consumer focused there are certain consumers that we know would really prefer to go online and to do everything on their own, especially on the smaller level of you know one to two thousand dollar policies, you know they treat it as as a almost as a personalized product. And those 20, 30 year old homeowners uh, or condo owners, they really want to do it this way. 
Um, on the flip side, most of the industry and most of the market, they still want to want to use they want to use brokers. And most of the risk is actually not one or two thousand dollar policies. They're bigger policies, so it increases the complexity of making the decision. And that's where I think it will continue to be a domain where the brokers, you know, they, they serve a very, very important role. So if we if we had gone just with one of those channels, we probably could have captured a lot of value, but then we'd alienate a segment that would say, well, these guys, you know, they're not catering to us, the early adopters. We and for us, it, it was really important. It was kind of core to our strategy that you know we have a good product, we have the best product, and we want to also make it accessible to everybody in the way that they're used to be purchasing. Um, this also piggybacks on top of something that we're very strong at, which is direct marketing. That's a lot of what I did and Adam did. Um, so it's kind of a natural thing in our DNA that we want to enable that and we want to use that power. Um, so that's that's kind of how we uh, you know we decided to go omnichannel. We actually don't see at all any any channel conflicts because there's a pretty good segregation of you know the small policies for early adopters. They go online. Everything else pretty much goes either through the brokers or through other channel partners that we're starting to work with. So it, it kind of makes makes sense. And you know I I'd even advise you know if you have a bigger policy and it's complex. I'd say definitely go go with your agent because they know you and they know the business and they could probably give you really good advice. Uh, we're an enabler. So wherever you want to shop from us and as much information and confidence you have in, in your knowledge, then you can find us in all the different channels. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. So just final question. Anything that I missed that um, you'd like to cover or anything else about Honeycomb you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? Um, no, I mean, I'd say that, you know, we're growing really quickly. Uh, we're seeing sales accelerating and we're getting into more states and we're looking for a lot of people. We're looking for a lot of great people who share our passion, both on the, the sales and business development side, uh, on the operational side, um, and on the engineering side. So um, if, you know, what I what I talked about excites the, the viewers and the listeners of the podcast, um, definitely reach out directly to me uh, or to anybody from my team. Uh, we'd love to talk. And uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity and, and the time. And I look forward to doing more of these in the future. Yeah, great. Well, uh, Ty Benzakin, he is the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb. It's been great having you on. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks.